Let's the rest of us take our Bibles and turn to John chapter 3. John chapter 3. We're going to be looking at verses 16 through 21 this morning. Believe and be not condemned. John three sixteen through 21. Believe and be not condemned. We've been studying the Gospel of John together on Sunday mornings, and we are in the most famous part of that Gospel. We see uh, here Jesus' interaction with Nicodemus, and we need to not forget that that's where this most famous verse, John chapter 3 and verse 16, is found. It is found in a context, and uh, that helps us um, work through the meaning of that verse. Um, uh, and we cannot uh, miss the whole because of uh, the narrow way we oftentimes take just one Verse. So let's be careful as we study together this morning. Jesus is lovingly challenging Nicodemus to understand that he, Jesus, is more than his miracles. And that those miracles, those signs actually point to something. Uh, back up in chapter 2 and verse uh, 23, it was, it's made clear, 23 uh, through the end there, that there were those who were believing in Jesus' name, but not because of who he was, more because of what he was doing and missing the purpose of what those signs and wonders pointed to. And Nicodemus had says, has said to him, no one can do these things, these signs, these miracles, unless God is with him. And Jesus answered, actually I am from the side of the Father. I am God, I'm from heaven. And he has most recently in our study shown that he must be lifted up as the serpent was lifted up in the wilderness, so that those who look on him will be saved. And now this morning, we see an explanation further of this in our text. If you're able to, would you please stand with me? I'm going to read aloud as you follow along. Starting in John chapter 3 and verse 1, we're going to read all the way down to verse 21. I'm reading from the English Standard Version this morning. Under the inspiration of the Spirit, the Apostle John writes, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit." Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. 
Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. You may be seated. That is the reading of God's Word. We've heard it both in the Old Testament reading earlier and now in the New Testament reading. I ask you to join me once again in prayer. Lord, again we come to you this morning with our Bibles open, recognizing that in the original autographs, uh, which we have so masterfully translated for us into our language, uh, that, Lord, you have spoken. You've spoken by men through your Spirit, even for those who would have read this 2,000 years ago up until today. And we recognize, Lord, that we need your help this morning. I need your help as I proclaim. And all of us need your help by your Spirit to illuminate our eyes and our hearts to an understanding of these truths. Perhaps, Lord, some in our midst this morning need that initial work of the Spirit in regeneration that we even read of this morning in John 3, that you would give them life from above. You would take their stony hearts and turn them to flesh so that they might receive the gift of repentance and faith and exercise those, Lord, in your only Son. And for those of us who know you, may we continue to grow this morning in the grace of Christ and the knowledge of Christ, in love for you, in love and service to one another. Lord, help us, we pray. Pray that you would get me out of the way. Humble me continually. In Jesus' name, amen. My favorite psalm is Psalm 73. This psalm is ascribed to Asaph, who is struggling as he looks at himself and realizes that he had almost stumbled. As he considered the world around him and the wicked, he himself had almost stumbled He was wondering why those who hated God were not suffering for their wickedness and their hatred against God. In fact, as he describes it, they were were mocking God. And from Asaph's view, they were getting away with it. But his mind adjusted. His mind adjusted once he entered into the sanctuary And remembered who God is and remembered the end of the wicked. What does this mean? That though they are not experiencing God's wrathful judgment currently, they will at some point if they do not turn to him. Asaph is disappointed in how he almost acted when he realizes how good God has been to him. And realizes how gracious God has been to him. And he also recalls the end of those who do not turn to God. Listen to the final verses of Psalm 73. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. 
<clears throat> but for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord Yahweh God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. This helps establish our main point from John 3 this morning. This, these words specifically, Those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord my refuge. If you turn your worship folder over, you see this written there for you. The main point this morning is this. All who believe in the Son of God will have eternal life. All who do not are already condemned. And each will give evidence by their works. All who believe in the Son of God will have eternal life. All who do not are already condemned. And each will give evidence by their works. I want us to see this morning three questions about eternal life answered in our text. Three questions about eternal life answered in these verses together this morning. The first is found in verses 16 and 17. Who can have eternal life? <clears throat> who, could have, who can have eternal life? I need to preface this by stating that um, scholars um, uh, debate over who now is speaking in John chapter 3. Is this Jesus continuing his conversation with Nicodemus? Or is this John commenting on what he quotes from Jesus? Now, one truth that we need to settle immediately is, kind of regardless of that, it is still God's word and it is truth. However, we, we see here an explanatory shift. This is a, a further comment on what Jesus has just said concerning, uh, concerning excuse me, eternal life. As, as most of you know, this is likely the most well-known verse in the Bible. Though I think Matthew 7.1 is quickly taking over. That seems to be the one that everybody throws at us these days. Judge not lest you be judged. The same is true of Matthew 7.1, though, and is true of John 3.16. Taken in isolation, it can bring a misunderstanding because Matthew 7.1 needs further explanation than that. And John 3.16 needs further explanation than that. I'm not saying that John 3.16 in and of itself, is not an encapsulation of the gospel. Martin Luther said, in it is contained the whole of the Bible. Uh, but um, we must remember that it is found within a context. And so we, we need to take that into account. I do think, by the way, that's just my opinion, that John is now commenting on Jesus' words. The language shifts here in the original language uh, from uh, one type of conversation to now an explanation. But regardless of that, uh, there is something that is being explained here to further this idea of the, the sun being lifted up and all who look on him having life. And what we must understand here as well is the language that is given in John 3 and verse 16 um, specifically because there have been ways that has been communicated over the years that do not represent well exactly what's being said here. It is likely... That what is being communicated here is not God's quantity of love for the world, as we would use the word so, but rather the quality of love that God has shown the world. This is the way in which God has shown His love to the world. This is the means by which God has shown His love to the world. And as Nicodemus is hearing this, it would have come as quite a shock to him. 
God loved the Jews and had a particular relationship with them. For Nicodemus to hear that God's love goes beyond the borders of the Jewish people would have been outside of what he likely would have understood about God and would have been taught about God in his childhood, in his upbringing, in his studies, as he became one of the main teachers of Israel. So so that comes as a shock to him because God loved Israel. Israel is God's uh, the apple of God's eye. And so this would have struck something in Nicodemus that he would not have been used to hearing. Now we must also explain from the whole of Scripture, there are two kinds of love that God has for the world. In one sense, God loves the entirety of the world as his creation, upon whom he bestows the blessings known as what we call in theology common grace. It reigns on the just and the unjust. That is God's love for the world in the sense of common grace. That those who uh, hate Him, that those who rebel against Him, would receive even the blessings that pour out, even as Asaph recognizes in Psalm 73. Those who would mock you, God, they're not receiving their just reward for that. They're not receiving the condemnation that is due them for mocking you. And so we see even Asaph struggling to understand how God could have any kind of a love for those who are His enemies. And we see in common grace, we see in the rain falling on the just and the unjust, the blessings of God that come, even at those who would shake their fists at God, even as they borrow from Him, though they are unwilling to recognize Him. And then there is, secondly, a particular kind of love which God has for those whom He has chosen from before the foundation of the world. This love is bestowed on those whom God saves because they are given the right to be called His children. Not all are given that right. Turn back to John chapter 1. John makes this very clear. Look at verse 9. It's going to be applicable to the rest of our study this morning. John 1 verse 9. The true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, notice those qualifiers, those who did receive him, in which way did they receive him? They believed in his name. He gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Those who believe are given that right. And that is the kind of love that we see here in John chapter 3 and verse 16. Because it says those who believe in Him will be given what? Eternal life. Those who believe will be given eternal life. They are given that name as the children of God and He has a particular kind of love For those who are his children. Well, in what way did God show his love to the world? Not just Israel, but people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Well, it says in John chapter 3, turning back there if you're still in John 1 and verse 16 For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son. In what way did he? 
love people outside of Israel from every tribe, tongue, and nation. He gave his only. And I think uh, begotten is a good word to put there, That though my translation and some of your translations don't have it. He gave his only begotten son. This word gave, also understood in this context, along with sent in verse 17. But gave indicates this idea of receiving and sent in the way in which it relates to the Trinitarian, what we call external operations. So how do you, how is one able to receive the Son? Well, first he has to be given. And verse 17 says, sent. How does one receive the Son without Him first being given to them? God gave His only begotten Son. As I mentioned, many translations have opted to leave this word begotten out in favor of using the word only to display the uniqueness of the Son of God. I don't don't have an issue with that because He is unique. He is uniquely the Son of God in that He is begotten, (laughs) in that He is sent from the Father. I do think that the word begotten should be used here for theological reasons. It helps us understand the intra-Trinitarian relationship in the Trinity. When I say intra-Trinitarian, inside the Trinitarian Godhead. Now, here's what I need to invite you to do. Does everybody have their scuba tanks this morning? You've got to strap on your scuba tank. You've got to put on your mask and your breathing apparatus to jump into the deep end of the pool with me this morning because that's where we're about to go. By the way, you know what SCUBA stands for? Self-contained underwater breathing apparatus. That's what that stands for. So we're, we're taking our self-contained underwater breathing apparatus and we're putting them on and we're going to jump into the deep end of the pool this morning because we're going to talk about some harder things. The understanding from all of Scripture is that the Son is eternally begotten of the Father. When it comes to the relationships within the Godhead, certainly, even as I say we're jumping into the deep end of the pool, it's a bit cloudy. It's hard for us to comprehend these truths that the Scriptures tell us. But God is one and is undivided in essence, in being. And yet... The scriptures tell us there are three persons who are holy and eternally divine. And yet, also, the three relate to one another eternally in one way as their persons describe. The Father is always the Father. The Son is always the Son. And the Spirit is always the Spirit. And they are always indivisibly God. I'm pausing to see if any of your brains are dripping out of your ears right now. This is very difficult for us to understand. But the scriptures often talk about the Trinity in regard to the way they relate to one another. We think of the Father as the Father. We hear this terminology then The Son. What does that infer? What does that imply? It implies that there is this relationship. And then, actually, in this same gospel, Jesus speaks of going back to the Father 
and the Spirit being sent. And he uses the language of the Father sending the Spirit and the Son sending the Spirit. So we talk about these relationships within the Trinity. How many of you can get your mind wrapped around eternity? <laughs> we, we, we cannot, right? So even as we're using this terminology about relations, we think about the time maybe that we started to love our wives, men, or husbands, women. We think about the idea of generating, and we think about the time that our children were born into the world and we began to love them. We have to think about the Trinity in eternal ways. This has always been so. There was never a time where this was not true of the Trinity. To put it plainly, the Son is sent from the Father because He is eternally the Son. Why are we getting all technical in this? Because, or, or maybe, maybe you're asking, why are you getting this way? Is this because you study theology? Well, yes, but we all need to study theology. But these are the questions that have been asked and answered in the history of the church, and we should not be suspect of that. But as our Christian forefathers have wrestled with these matters and have rightly condemned heresies such as modalism and tritheism, we need to be careful that we are worshiping the God of the Bible and who He tells us He is. So one of the rich theological truths that comes out of John 3.16 is that the Father sent the Son. You say, well, duh, that's what it says, right? Why are you getting all into all this other stuff? Because it's important for you to worship the God who the Bible tells us. And so the Son is not a separate God from the Father. He is God. Otherwise, we get into tritheism. You have God the Father who's a Son, uh, God the Father who's a God, God the Son who's a, a God, and God the Spirit who's a God. Or modalism, which says that when God the Father is not the Father, He is transformed into becoming the Son. And when He is not the Son, after His mission is done as the Son, He comes into the world as the Spirit. There's one God in three modes, but that's not what the Scriptures say. We must worship who God is. And this actually aids us in understanding who exactly can be saved. If we say one must believe in Him, who is this Him? We cannot have our own ideas of who the Son is. We must believe in who He truly is and what He has come to do. And and there is Trinitarian truth behind that. Because the plan of the Godhead from before the foundations of the world is to save people by the Son being sent into the world. What does Revelation say? The Lamb who was slain from before the foundation of the world. This is the eternal plan of God. I I can't get my mind wrapped completely around that. But what did the Son come to do? He put on flesh. He lived a perfect life that we could not live. He died a death that we deserved. He rose again three days later to show that He has victory over sin and death and that He is God. He ascended into heaven. He sends the Spirit along with the Father who dwells within us. Confirming to us that we are, what does John say in 1 John? That we are indeed the children of God. And therefore, we await his coming again to do what? To judge. It is true that whoever believes in him, in the fullness of what that means, will not perish, but will have 
eternal life. Who can have eternal life? The one who believes in the Son will not perish, but have eternal life. We've seen previously this idea of eternal life. Jesus has already spoken of in terms of the kingdom. There's an equivalency here between these two terms. To see the kingdom, to enter into the kingdom, to have eternal life. Therefore, we can boldly proclaim to those around us, if they believe in the Son, the Son whom God sent, who like the serpent is lifted up, which we understand is the cross, they can have eternal life. Who can we preach this to? We can preach this to everyone. We can preach unabashedly and unashamedly that if someone places their faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, they will have eternal life. Another purpose clause is then given in verse 17. The purpose of God sending His Son into the world. It's not that the world would be condemned. That is already the case as we shall see. But that any throughout the world who would believe in Him might be saved. Not just Israel, but anyone throughout all the world. For God sent His Son into the world not to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Now why is it important to make the distinction of the word world here by stating anyone in the world who believes. Because the text makes that distinction if we read it in context. Unless you believe that all people from all times everywhere are going to be saved, you do not hold that the whole world, every person everywhere at all times, will be saved. And that is what we're talking about here. A division happens in verse 18. A division that says, we'll see in a moment, that those who do not believe in the name of the Son of God are condemned already. The Bible does not teach that all will be saved. The Bible teaches all who come to Him will be saved. All who believe in His name will be saved. We'll see this in our next point, but first let me reiterate, if you have not turned from your sin and trusted in Christ... As Jesus says here in this text, you must be born again. You must be born of God. And I implore you today to repent, to turn from your sins and believe. If you have trusted in Christ, you have this assurance. You are one who has entered into the kingdom. One who has been granted eternal life. And you will one day see that kingdom And this eternal life that has been granted to you has been granted to you by the eternal triune God. Therefore, His steadfast hand, as we sang this morning, is keeping you. Amen indeed. This does lead us to our second point. Secondly, who is condemned? Who is it that can be saved was our first question answered. Anyone who believes in the Son of God can be saved. But secondly, we must ask this question, who is condemned? The hope is that the one who believes in Him is no longer under condemnation, but that leaves us with the reality that those who are not in Him are condemned already. Look at what it says. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned. Uh, Romans 8.1, right? 
Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's the hope of the one who has believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. There is no condemnation. However, the flip side of that coin, as John says here in verse 18, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. What is condemnation? Condemnation is judgment. They are already under the judgment of God because their works reveal the reality of their status to put together everything that this passage is speaking of. The one who believes in him is moved from the status of condemned to the status of not condemned and in the kingdom and granted eternal life. Until we come to faith in Christ, we are under the status of the righteous wrath and judgment of God. Because we are all sinners. And the scriptures here give us a reason for that condemnation. They have not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Well, you may ask, what of those who never have heard the gospel? Are they condemned? The answer to that is yes, they are. This is not necessarily a rejection of the gospel message. But the one who does not believe in the name of the Son of God is condemned. This is seen that in the next verse, the judgment is light has come into the world and they have rejected the light. To whatever degree that light has been given, they have rejected it. Paul certainly understands this truth um, as it's stated in <clears throat> Romans chapter 1 says that the very nature of God and His power can be seen by what is observed in what He has created. And, and rather than fear God, men rejected God and they have literally used their sin to suppress that reality and that truth. Say so it doesn't seem very fair. Well, if you know of people who have not heard the gospel... Why aren't you going to them? I believe that Christ will not return until the Gentile population of heaven is brought in. Therefore, there is hope. But what is keeping you from being that one who goes and tells them? Perhaps you have good reasons. Are you praying that they would come to know Christ? My uh, senior pastor in St. Louis, Jerry Marshall, when he was working at a church in Chicago, they actually had the jungle man from Africa, who everybody is always concerned about in this regard, come and talk to them. That's how he described himself. He said, I am that one that you are concerned about, uh, about whether or not the gospel will ever reach me. And what he basically explained was, once I started seeing the truth of God and began saying to this God, whoever he was, send someone to tell me more about you, the missionary came. Is God sovereign over that as well? He is indeed. And this is how this man ended his testimony about coming to know Christ. He said, don't worry about me. Go and proclaim the gospel. God has it under control. Be the one to go if you can. 
If you cannot pray that God would send laborers, we're going to see this in John chapter 4, because the harvest is plentiful and the workers are what? Few. Maybe this morning, maybe this morning, John chapter 3 and verse 18 is God's call on your life to be one who is sent from this congregation into the world to find those that need to hear the good news. One of my favorite alternative Christian rock bands from the 90s had one of the greatest lines I've ever heard in any song. The name of the band was Black Eyed Siva. If you don't know who the sons of Siva were, come talk to me later. We'll talk about that. It's from Acts. It's a great name for a band, by the way. But they said this. If God has called you to be a missionary, don't stoop to be a king. Maybe you're being called this morning. But the ones who are condemned love the darkness because their deeds are dark and the light would uncover that darkness. Look at it. Verse 19, and this is the judgment. Notice that word judgment, condemnation. Those words are from the same root word in uh, the original language. Condemned and judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his work should be exposed. Turn back over to John chapter 1 once again and hear these words. John chapter 1 and verse 9, speaking of the Word, the Son of God, the eternal Son of God, the Messiah, the true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. This is the rejection of the light. This morning, if you sit here and you continue to rebel and reject and hate the God of the universe, I want you to know right now, this is the light. This is the light that is attempting to break into your dark heart and expose your wickedness. Not because I stand up here as some model of virtue who never sinned. No, I needed that light as well. To expose the darkness of my heart. We all need that light to expose. And yet some, it says, hate the light, will not come into the light because their wickedness will be exposed. You see, the rejection of the Son of God by name is not necessary for condemnation. But hearing and believing is to be moved from under condemnation to eternal life. Adam, as the federal head of humanity, plunged us all into condemnation. And God, in his eternal wisdom and grace, has made a way that anyone who is condemned can be granted eternal life if they believe in the name of his Son. Therefore, if we know that all must hear the gospel in order for them to receive eternal life, we must go and proclaim the gospel to them and make disciples as Jesus has called us to do. You see, the call is true of all of us. You don't have to be the one who is called to go overseas or somewhere else in the United States. The call is to all of us to make 
disciples. We bring the light. We are simply the bearers of the light. We're the bearers of that precious jewel of the gospel. We're just earthen vessels, Paul says. Common pots in the use of the household that God gloriously saves and uses to proclaim this message. Dear ones, as even if I have called some and said, maybe perhaps it is what God is doing in your life to call you to, to, to be a missionary. Be faithful, if that is not what he's called you to do. Be faithful to be that witness, that disciple maker in the context in which he has you currently. If we know that people need to hear the gospel in order to get out from underneath condemnation and into the kingdom, we must tell them. That's what we've been called to do. And we're called to come alongside of one another and to encourage each other to live accordingly to what God has called us to be. And there are distinguishing marks that are given in this passage concerning those who are condemned and those who are united to Christ as we see in our final point. How are either of these things known? How how is it known whether one has been brought into the kingdom or one is still under condemnation? We see this in verses 20 and 21. In the short, the argument given in our text is they are known by their works. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Now listen, works are not the means of our justification, but proof of it. Works are not the grounds upon which we are saved. We can do nothing to earn favor or to get ourselves into the kingdom. That is done solely by Christ. But the fruit of that reality in our life is that we do the things that God has laid out before us. Mike prayed about this earlier in our pastoral prayer. Those things, Ephesians 2.10, that God has set out before us, we walk in those. Those who are condemned, the one who is condemned is one who does wicked things and refuses to come to the light because the light exposes his works. But the one who does what is true comes to the light so that it can be clearly seen that his works, and I like the way the New American translate this, his works have been, I love this, wrought in God. They have come about because of God's work in their life. This is ultimately God's working in the saint. By the way, if you are one who continues to be under the condemnation of the Lord, And you do not want to come into the light because it will expose your heart. Please know a day is coming when those things will be exposed anyway. And it is the day of judgment and it will be too late then. All all men's hearts, all of his works will be exposed before a holy God. And he will rightly say, you are condemned. True believers in Christ or on the trajectory that is marked by loving God and a desire to please Him and loving another, uh, one another enough to actually be involved in each other's lives and living, uh, loving the lost enough to share with them their status as condemned by God, but showing them God's love and sending His Son. Is that true of you? Are you living this way? If 
not you need to go to someone this morning and tell them you need someone to help you live out what you say you believe. That's called discipleship. Say, certainly, Jason, you have arrived, brother, right? I mean, you're a preacher, you're a pastor. You don't need this kind of thing. Nope, (laughs) I need it. I realize I need it more and more every day. I need the word, I need prayer, I need the Holy Spirit, and I need you as covenant members with me to sharpen me, to help me grow in my faith, to help me walk more faithfully. For those who do not know Christ, here's the bad news. Because of your sin, you are condemned. But God loved the world, people from every tribe, tongue, and nation, in this way. He sent his son to rescue condemned people and change them. Is that you this morning? Look to the sun. See him hanging on a tree for a sinner like you. Turn from your sin to him. Turn to him, the one who lived a perfect life you could not live, who died the death that you deserved and victoriously rose again to show his victory over sin and death and ascended on high and is coming again. And just be aware of this. The next time he comes, he will come in judgment. Trust him today. Would you pray with me? Lord, even as we close now in prayer, I'm reminded of the great debt that I could not pay that Jesus paid on my behalf. The life that I could not live, the righteousness that I could not do, that is mine in Jesus Christ because he lived it, because it is his righteousness. And Lord, all I can say is thanks, and I can't say it enough. Lord, I pray for those of us who know you, that we would grow today, that we would encourage one another while it is still called today to love you to honor you with our lives, to live for you, to love one another and encourage each other while we await your return. And I pray for the ones who do not know you, that are in our midst, that they would come to know you today as a result of hearing the good news and the bad news. That they would be moved from under your condemnation into your life, your love. May that happen today, Lord. Thank you for your truth. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.